We are coming to the end. We've got two, two more studies, guys. And uh, Pastor Sean is, is going to share with us. Sean has been our youth pastor here for going on, I think, 10 years. And uh, just a couple of years ago, he transitioned, and, and he is now the headmaster of our school. Isn't that cool? And, you know, the, the, goal, the goal is that we would train up young men to become godly men. And uh, I, I think Pastor Sean is, is, is the perfect guy to do that. And so we're, we're excited about what he's doing to the school. And I asked him to come and share with you guys. And so would you give Sean Gibson a warm welcome? There you go. Awesome. Well, now that you're full and you're tired, if you dare try to take a nap. Well, let's pray. Father, we want to praise you and thank you for this day and for this opportunity. Lord, it's more than we deserve. We want to thank you and praise you that you've made us men. We ask that now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us godly men. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. We've been going over being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we were to pick uh, a character from the Bible, a personality from the Bible that, um, that exhibited that concept of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I chose David, so I think I should establish my apologetic for why I chose David. Was he full of the Holy Spirit? Well, the scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that Samuel took a horn of oil and he poured it upon David's head in front of his brothers. And it said that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And when we look at what David wrote, we see him saying things like, when my Lord is with me, I can run against a troop. I can leap over a wall. He says, Lord, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So by his own testimony, David had the Holy Spirit in his life. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Matthew and of Mark and in, the, in Acts, we see that the uh, apostles... And Jesus himself attributed to David that he wrote as moved by the Holy Spirit. So I think we can make a pretty good case that David is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he is a spirit-filled man. And in looking at his life, obviously there's a lot in the Bible about David. In looking at his life, three things stood out to me. And it was how that I think exemplified this idea that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, was, it had to do with how he dealt with sin, how he dealt with the highs and lows of life, and how he ultimately dealt with death. And so my three points are going to be based on three words that, he, that uh, we repent, that we render, and that we resolve. We repent, we render, and we resolve. And that is the concept. So first of all, when we look in repentance, David was not the first one anointed king of Israel. He was not the first one anointed by Samuel, and he was not the first one that the Holy Spirit fell upon. The scripture is clear that Samuel also anointed Saul, and when he anointed Saul, that the Spirit of God fell upon him mightily, even in a much more Pentecostal way than he did with David. Saul prophesied, and he, and he spoke out. But we know that Saul had the kingdom taken from him, and David was considered a man after God's own heart. And so we say, well, what was the difference between Saul and David? And some might say, well, you know, Saul, the reason that the kingdom was taken is because he sinned. But I think we would all agree that David's sins are much more heinous than Saul's. I don't believe it was the sin. I believe it was the response to sin. If you recall, Saul is just now king, 
and the Philistines are amassing themselves at a place called Michmash. And this, the Philistine armies are upset because Saul's son Jonathan had just whooped one of their troops by himself with his armor bearer. And so the Philistines have been alarmed that Israel is starting to, to be an upstart. So in order to squash it, they show up with their chariots and with their horses and with their armors, their swords, their spears. And the Philistine army is much more um, developed. It's more technologically advanced. It's much larger, and it's much better prepared. And the people of Israel are gathering under Saul at a place called Gilgal. But as the Hebrews are hearing about the Philistines, it says that the people started to hide in caves and in tombs and in cisterns and behind rocks. Some even crossed the Jordan River and started to run away from the promised land. Now, Saul had been instructed to stay at Gilgal for seven days until Samuel, the man of God, would show up to offer the sacrifice. Well, it had been the seventh day, and evidently Samuel wasn't as um, punctual as Saul would have hoped. And so as Saul's seeing everybody run, he says, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings that I may offer them to God. And so Saul disobeys God. He no sooner gets done with the burnt offering. He doesn't even get to the peace offering. Samuel shows up and he's like, what are you doing? And this is Saul's response. He says, well, when I saw that the people were fleeing from me, and when you didn't arrive at the appointed time, and I saw that the Philistines were amassing at Michmash, and I knew that I had not given an offering unto God before the battle, I forced myself to do this. Did you catch his response? It's not my fault. It's the people's fault. It's the Philistines' fault. It's your fault. It's kind of even God's fault that I had to make this offering before I go to battle. But it's not my fault. It was an excuse. Well, Samuel responds. He says, you've been very foolish in this in that you did not obey the Lord. Because of this, the kingdom will be taken from you. But not immediately. And Saul is given another chance to obey the Lord, the Lord tells Saul to go out and to take out the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites, when he's going to take out Agag and the Amalekites, he's supposed to do it completely. He's supposed to kill all the people. He's supposed to kill all the animals. He's supposed to take everything out, and they are not to take any of the spoils because this is an offering unto God, like a burnt offering. He says, I want you to totally annihilate them. Well, Saul takes the armies in there, and they do destroy the Amalekites, but Saul takes for himself a trophy. He takes himself Agag, the king. And the people take the best of the flocks and the herds for an offering, they say. And they're coming back, and here's Samuel again. You, have you ever noticed that when you become a Christian, you don't get away with anything? <laughs> right? And so Saul is coming back. No sooner is he coming back, and there's Samuel going, uh, what's going on? And Saul goes, oh, well, I've obeyed the Lord. And he's like, really? Then what's this bleeding I hear in my ears? He says, no, no. And this is his response. Let me, do, let me not butcher the Bible. Let me tell you exactly what he said. I did obey, but the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the ox, and the choices of the things devoted for destruction, but they brought them to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Once again, he says, I did obey. It was the people's fault. Do you notice the general response of Saul when he is faced with his own sin? It's not my sin, it's their sin, it's your sin, it's God's sin, but it's not my sin. He makes an excuse when presented with sin. And that is the response not of the Holy Spirit, that is the response of our ego and our flesh to protect our hide. Now let's contrast this with David. Of course, David is kind of known for his sin as well, isn't he? In fact, 
a very famous sin. And that it says that in the time when the kings went out to war, David didn't. He stayed home as the sluggard. And as he's loafing about upon the roof of his palace, he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked. So he inquires to her, finds out that she's another man's wife, and has sex with her. She becomes pregnant. So to cover his sin, he brings her husband home. But Uriah, her husband, is more noble than David. And he says, how is it that I should lay with my wife when my brothers are bleeding and dying in the field? Which he could have added, which is where you were supposed to be, David. So David can't get him to lay with his wife and cover his tracks. He even gets him drunk, but it doesn't work. So finally, he sends him back to the battle, and he has him killed. And then when Uriah is killed, David moves in like the benevolent dictator that he is, and he takes Bathsheba for his own wife to comfort her and thinks he's pulled off the perfect scam. But the man of God shows up. This time, it's not Samuel. Samuel's dead. The man of God now is named Nathan. And he confronts David with his sin. But notice the difference. When David is confronted with his sin, the first words out of his mouth are this. I have sinned against God. In fact, he is so repentant that he writes Psalm 51, which is a song of repentance. In fact, if you're ever in a position where you are needing to repent, I highly advise you, go to Psalm 51 and pray that psalm, and you will find it fits like a glove. David repented. It wasn't the only time David blew it. You see, there's nothing saying that we're supposed to be perfect if we're filled with the Holy Spirit or if we're saved, just that we're repentant. Later on in David's kingdom, he goes to number the soldiers of Israel. Well, there's a problem with this. He's done as king and see how well he's grown his kingdom. Or maybe he's numbering the men to see if he's got enough to take on a specific enemy. But there's a problem. It's completely forbidden to number Israel. Because you see, you're only allowed to count that which you own. You can count your money. You can count your flat screens. You can count your homes. But God said, but you can't count Israel because Israel is not yours. Israel is mine, says the Lord. And so David starts to count Israel. Now, this isn't a secret thing. Everybody knew this. Even his generals, and they tried to talk him out of it, they're like, David, please don't do this thing. But David prevails, and he has them counted. This time, he doesn't have to wait for a prophet of God to show up. Look what he says. It says, now David's heart troubled him after he numbered the people, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. And when he arose in the morning... A different man of God comes to him. His name is Gad. He is the seer of the Lord. And God has said, go and give these three consequences to David for his choice. And so Gad comes to David and he says, choose which of the following three will happen to you. Seven years of famine will be upon the land, or you will run from your enemy for three months, or three days of pestilence shall hit you. And David cries out and he says, I am perplexed. He says, but let me fall into the hands of God and not of man. And it says from that point forward for the appointed time, God's plague hit Israel and 70,000 innocent people die from Dan to Beersheba, from one end of Israel to the other. And it says that as David is seen and the Lord gives him eyes to see, as David sees the angel of the Lord bringing the pestilence, David cries out. He says, the sin is mine. 
The sin is mine, it should be upon my head. But who are these sheep that they should perish? Please let your wrath be poured out upon me and my father's household. David has changed, hasn't he? Before, with Bathsheba, he tried to save his skin. No more. He knows better. You see, if he was trying to save his skin, he would have picked seven years of famine. Because in a famine, only poor people die. David's rich. He can get strawberries from Mexico shipped in. He's not going to starve. He's going to have food. If he wanted to protect his skin, he could say, hey, I will run from my enemies for three months. Because then only his soldiers die. Because the people have already forbidden David to go back into battle. But he says, no, let me fall into the hands of my God, for he is merciful. And then when he sees innocent people hurting and dying because of his sin, he says, God, please, no, not them, me. Do you see the huge difference? The antithesis of what is going on here, the dichotomy. Saul says, it's not my fault, it's theirs. Don't punish me, punish them. David says, it's not their fault, it's mine. Don't punish them, punish me. And so a man who is empowered by the Holy Spirit does not make excuses. No excuses. He repents. And we, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we do not protect our ego. We do not make excuses. We repent. You see, our sin is not somebody else's fault. Actually, let me make that more personal. If you don't mind, I know I'm included in this, but I want it to bite a little bit, so I'm going to say you, okay? Your sin is not God's fault. Your sin is not your papa's fault. It's not your mama's fault. It's not Obama's fault. It's not your llama's fault. Your sin is your fault. My sin is my fault. It's no one else's. We must repent, or we have to question whether or not the Spirit is in us at all. It says David's heart troubled him. The Spirit was moving inside of him. So how does the man of God, how does the one who's empowered by the Holy Spirit respond to sin? He repents. But now how does the man of God respond to circumstances? And, and, I, don't, and I mean from the, from the top of the top to the bottom of the bottom. Life is pretty much made up of all kinds of things, but it's really the peaks and valleys that really kind of mark us for who we are. What do we do when we're on top? Well, it tells us what David did. You see, David brought back the Ark of the Covenant, and he was bringing it back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. It had been taken under um, the time of the judges. It's been, it was taken, and Saul didn't get it back. Nobody got it back. David is bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. This is his high point. And it says that as he's bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, that he takes off his royal robes, royal robes. And he puts on a linen tunic, a common garb of a priest or a commoner. And it says that he dances wildly before the Lord. He's dancing and he's leaping and he's singing and he's praising in front of the ark as they're bringing it back into Jerusalem and making sacrifices and offerings. His worship is extravagant. It is over the top. And it says that as he's entering into Jerusalem, Michal, Saul's daughter, his wife, looks out the window and she sees him dancing in the linen ephod. And it says she despised him in her heart. And so David brings the ark and he places it in the tent that he had prepared for it. And he's rejoicing. God has returned to Jerusalem. And so he makes all of these offerings and then he blesses the people. And it says he gives them cakes of bread and of dates and of raisins, and he sends them home. You're not blushing. 
You should be. Because cakes of bread and of dates and of raisins, this is what he was doing. The, the bread means that we're provided for. But the dates and the raisins are aphrodisiacs. Okay, so what David's pretty much doing is he comes back, God's back in Jerusalem, here, here's some oysters, here's some chocolate, here's a Barry White album, go home and make babies, God's in the house. And so he blesses them and he sends them home to be fruitful because God has returned to Jerusalem, and then it says he goes home to bless his own house, and Michal comes out to meet him. Oh. Didn't the king distinguish himself today by stripping himself like a fool in front of his servant's maids? She's pretty much saying, you disgust me. You're supposed to be king, and you uncover yourself and dance before the people. And David's response was, no, I danced before the Lord, and I will be more undignified than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But in the maiden's eyes whom you speak of, I shall be honored. I worship God, not man. And so here is the situation, is that David, you see, Michal's problem wasn't that, that David didn't have this great victory, but she's like, why didn't you wear your robes? Why weren't you being carried? Why didn't you have people kiss your ring? This was your opportunity to be king. And you dress like a commoner, and you, and, and you dance with the people. You see, she's saying, where is your pride? And he's saying, there is no room for pride in a man filled with the Holy Spirit. No pride. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is in his high point. What about at his low point? David has one of those as well. His son Absalom has amassed an army, and he is attempting a coup, an overthrow of David's government. David hears about it. Absalom has an army. He's anointed himself king. He has one of the priests, and they're coming to march upon Jerusalem. David knows at this point that he's unprepared. He's not ready for this surprise attack, especially from his own family. And so I can't imagine what it was like, but he takes his people and he retreats. He runs from Jerusalem, the city that he conquered to be the city of his God, his capital, what he's fought his whole life for, and he is re retreating. He is running away. And it's got to be a horrible time. And there's this man comes out named Shimei. And he says, go on, go on, you man of bloodshed. You evil, wicked man. The blood that you brought down on Saul's house, it's returned to your own head. Even your own son comes after you to take the kingdom from you. Get out of here, you wicked man of bloodshed. And David has a general. And he's like, why should this dead dog curse my king? Let me take off his head. And I'll tell you what, I would think that would be pretty tempting because my son has betrayed me, I'm feeling low, I'm about as low as I can get, and now somebody is just like vilely cursing me. My ego is crushed. Everything that I've spent my entire life for is gone. I am a big loser. I am a failure and now this guy is cursing me, I think it would be extremely tempting to say, yeah, take off his head and show the people standing here that I'm still kind of in control. Or actually, have you done it yourself? When things aren't going right at work, you take off a head at home. Ever done that? You jump down somebody's throat at home because you're losing control at work. 
We have a tendency to be full of pride and want to protect our egos. And here's a situation where you would think David would do that. And he says, what am I going to do with you, son of Zariah? How do I know this man is not cursing me because the Lord told him to? And he turns to all the people and he says, look, my own son has rebelled against me and seeks my life. How much more this son of Benjamin? Do not stop him. Let him curse. Maybe the Lord has told him to curse. And as David is leaving Jerusalem and he's going up the hill, Shimei stays to the side of him, parallel to him, and continues to curse him and throw rocks at him and throw dirt on him. And David doesn't have him killed. How is it that David can be humble and give glory to God at his top peak point and at his lowest moment? Well, he writes it. He tells us. He gives us the key. He writes it in a psalm. Psalm 31, listen, he says, because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my friends. Those who see me in the street run away from me. I am forgotten like I'm a dead man, like one who is insane. I'm like a broken vessel, for I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side, and while they took counsel against me, they scheme on how to take my life. But check this out. But as for me, I will trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. And check out this line. This is the magic line. My times are in your hands. Did you catch that? How does David in his lowest moment not become an arrogant, prideful, boastful man who tries to protect his ego? Because he knows one thing, and it's an extremely important truth. My times are in your hands. I'm not mine anymore. You are God. I am not. You are sovereign. I am yours. Whatever happens to me goes through your fingers. So my times are in your hands, and I will trust you. That's powerful, isn't it? So no matter what's going on in the life of a man who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, what is the mark that the Holy Spirit is upon him? That no matter how high he is or how low he is, there's no pride but he renders everything unto God. We have a word that we usually put with render, surrender. He surrendered to God, a man who was humble. Now, I've got a little soapbox, if you guys don't mind. Remember David dancing before the Lord? And he's dancing and he's singing like a man. I have known men, godly men, awesome men, and I have seen them jump up and both hands up and like victory and dance and scream and yell in front of a television set for a football game or a basketball game or a hockey game. And I have seen these same men in church with their hands in their pocket during the worship of the Almighty God, yawning and going, hmm. Also, tomorrow, listen carefully. You know what you'll hear? The voice of women in worship. The voice of women in worship. Now, don't get me wrong. They have beautiful voices. Little lilty, lighty, little la voices. I, but I'm wondering, well, when half the people in the room are men, how come I'm not hearing any men's voices? I mean, I don't, I don't ever recall going home and, and saying, hey, darling, sweetheart, you know, I went out there to yell for the boys, but they just can't hear me. Could you go call them in? Like, what's she going to do? She go, boys, come in. Mine is the voice that shakes the coffee table. 
Mine is the voice that stops wickedness, not hers. So how is it that in church that we hear the women's voices? We're the men. We're the worshipers of God. We have the lungs. We have the chest cavity. Check out Revelations chapter 19. A voice came from the throne of God saying, Praise God, you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And look what he heard. And I heard the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunder, singing hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. That does not sound like little girl voices, does it? The voice of thunders, of hosts, and of many waters. Gentlemen, I think it's blasphemous that we would give more of our energy, our time, our talent, our strength to a bunch of overpaid post-adolescent athletes who get paid way too much to chase a ball around a field, many of whom are delinquents and should be locked up. And we give them more than we give the Almighty God in His house, at His pulpit, before His throne. Who is going to lead? It's supposed to be us. So we take our best for God's glory. We take our worst for God's glory because my life is for God's glory. So we render to God. And even when in our lowest time, how is it that we do not strike out for our own pride, strike out for our own ego? Because we should know that our life is not the product of blind forces of time and chance. Our life is not the result of social pressures by some plan of man. Our life is the fruit of a preordained divine plan of God's providence. And no matter what happens to us, it's God's will. You go, what if it's hard? It's God's will. Well, then why is it so hard? I don't know. Maybe you're stupid. And God's trying to wake you up. But it's God's will. Finally, how does David deal with death and the unknown? He's old now. It's the book of 1 Kings. He's 70 years old, maybe, approximately. And it says that he's cold and he can't keep warm. And so they place blankets on him, but they can't keep warm. So his servants have an idea. Um, and I'm going to guess that his servants were men. Because this is their idea. David, we've got a great idea. Let's go get a young virgin, the most beautiful in the land, and she will lay in your bosom and keep you warm. And the Septuagint version says, and excite you. And she shall be your nurse. And so it says that they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and they brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful. She became the king's nurse, and she served him. But the king did not have sex with her. That's just a freaky little paragraph, isn't it? First of all, and it bothers everybody. The Bible commentators go nuts on this little passage in this story of Abishag. That's all it is about Abishag. That's about it. But everybody wants to know, why, why didn't he have sex with her? Because let's face it, this is the perverted dream of every old pervert. 
that you get some young virgin girl to lay naked with you in your bed. Now, to, to their credit, at this time, they know from ancient records that, that that was considered a treatment for the aged, that the idea is that if you had a young person slay, lay in your bed and you breathed in their breath, that somehow you breathed in their youthfulness. But let's face it, and, and the idea is, and, and then they'll excite you, kind of draw you out of your death blows here. But everybody wants to know, so why didn't David have sex with her? And so some say, well, probably because he was just too old and he couldn't. And others say, the rabbis say, well, because she would have been his 19th wife and he didn't want to violate some weird Jewish rule because it's not in the Bible, 19. So how about we just don't speculate? How about we just look at what the Bible says? It says, he did not have sex with her and he made sure everybody knew it. David is protecting this young girl's purity. She's young, he's old, he's dying. She's not. She has a future. And actually, her future just got changed when she became the king's nurse. Because anyone who sleeps in the king's bed no longer, no matter if he dies, can no longer go back to any common life. She can only be with the king. And the only king that is going to be in Israel is going to be his son, Solomon. So really, she's going to be Solomon's wife. And he keeps her pure, and he makes sure everyone knows. I think David has changed a little bit, hasn't he? You know, he didn't start off so good there, but he finishes strong. He thinks about her over himself. The following chapter, it says that he's dying, and his last words are to Solomon, his son. Maybe Solomon's 12 or in his early teens, and he calls him in. And he doesn't say, Solomon, build a, a statue to me, build a great monument, build a pyramid to bury me in. This is what he says, his last words to his son. He says, be strong, therefore, and show yourself the man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do, wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out the promise which he spoke to me concerning you, saying, if your sons will walk before me in truth with their heart and their soul, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. When it comes right down to it, at the end of his life, David is not worried about writing his legacy or his memoirs or his autobiography. He is not worried about a statue or some monument to, to extol his life. He's bringing up his son and he's telling his son the most important thing on the planet to him, follow God, my son. His son is more important than he is. He knows that his life is to pass a legacy on to his son. And then if we look at the book of 1 Chronicles, it's essentially um, um, just the lineage of people all the way up until David. And then the rest of the entire book is a litany of all the things that he did to prepare for the building of the temple. How he amassed gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone and wood how he laid out the divisions of the priesthood and the singers and the gatekeepers, how he drew out the plans and how he'd amassed everything that was necessary, how he had hired all the greatest skillsmen to come in to build a temple that he knew he would never see. Because God said, David, you will not build my house, your son will. 
And if he was just kind of a self-centered, flesh-centered, worldly man, he would have said, fine, then it's my son's problem. As basically most of our culture is currently doing today. Let my kids pay for it. Bumper sticker, I'm spending my kids' inheritance. You fool. It's not yours to spend. It's yours to build with. In Hebrew, the word for son is benny, and it means builder. We are to lay a foundation for our sons to build upon, to lay a foundation for their sons to build upon. Why? Because we are building an eternal kingdom. This life is not about me, and it's not about you. This life is a relay, not a destination. And David gets it. A man empowered by the Holy Spirit understands something. You don't quit on God's plan. But you resolve to finish well. The Bible is filled with stories of men who start good and finish bad. But that's not what we were called to do. We were called to finish well, which means no quitting. No quitting. We're in a culture of quitters. You don't want the child, you abort it. You don't like the marriage, you divorce. You don't like your job, you quit. You don't like your church, you go to another church. You don't like something, you quit. Christians don't quit. Ever. God has to drag us out. If the Lord is the only one who can open the door for me to come in, then the Lord is the only one who can drag my sorry carcass out. It can't be because you step on my toes and I get offended with you. Haven't we become a ridiculously weird culture of about getting offended? It's like, oh, you offend me. So what? <laughs> Grow up. Well, you don't want to do that? You might offend them. Right now in the public schools, you can't have a little Izod on your polo shirt because you don't want the haves to offend the have-nots. You can't have, can have a little Ralph Lauren there. That would be offensive. That would, might offend somebody. You can't have a cross. That might offend somebody. You can't say Jesus. That might offend somebody. You can't give them the truth. That might offend somebody. Sorry, that wasn't even part of this. Don't quit. <laughs> But this does kind of come back. You notice how sexual purity comes back into this. And, and of course, you know, it's a men's conference. And so if it's a men's conference, we've we got we to address this. And we have to kind of really ask ourselves a question. Why is it important for us to be faithful with what's in our pants? And the Bible's very clear. Because a man who is faithful with a very little thing will also be faithful in much. Okay? Come on, this is a men's conference. Where else could I use that line, right? <laughs> I love men's conferences because you can, you can just, can I tell you, this is my, I'm just going to give away my secret. You'll never have to listen to me again. My, my men's conference me message is always the same. It doesn't matter what text you give me. This is the message. You ready? This, are you ready for it? Take off those ridiculous panties, pull up your pants, and let's go. That's the message. All right. Now, you might say, what? What's that? Is that, is that biblical? Where's that verse? It's in there. This is the way it looks. 
Panties are fine. Panties have their place in the world, just not on men. Panties on men is a weird thing. It's a strange, queer, twisted thing. And so the idea is, what are we doing with those? We're men. And pulling up our pants is actually a biblical phrase, gird your loins, which means get ready for battle and live your destiny. You see, the problem is right now is the world is going to hell predominantly because the church is sleeping. And the church is led by the men of the church who are too busy trying on panties. We're basically, what is the world doing? And it's in there. Let me give you a verse, just because you think I'm weird. <laughs> Do not be conformed to this world. Take those ridiculous things off. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Gird your loins, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's go. You see, that's the verse, that's the word, that's the message, that's this message. What do we do with sin? Get rid of those ridiculous excuses. Repent, gird your loins, and glorify God. What do we do with our best? Get rid of that ridiculous pride. Gird your loins with humility. Surrender unto God and let's glorify Him. What do I do about death and, and the uncertainty of what is coming on? Get rid of that ridiculous quitting. Resolve yourself to be faithful unto death and let's glorify God. Let's go. That is our call and that is our charge, that we are to be men and we do not make excuses. No excuses, no pride, and no quitting. We are to repent, we are to render, and we are to resolve. We are to be men who are moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about the how-tos, and, 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 and I just want to clear up something because sometimes there's two camps within the church and we don't really need these two camps. So we're just going to clarify this. It would be something like this. So, do I repent that I might be empowered by the Holy Spirit, or am I empowered by the Holy Spirit so that I might repent? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Do I surrender unto God that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit, or am I filled with the Holy Spirit that I might have the power to surrender to God? Absolutely. No, you're, you're not tracking with me. What I'm saying is, do I stay faithful until the end that I might be empowered with the Holy Spirit? Or am I empowered with the Holy Spirit that I might stay faithful till the end? You got it. And you see, this is the issue, is that sometimes what we do in camps within the church is that we close one eye or the other eye and we draw away from the centrality of the scriptures and what they teach is plain truth to us as men. And we know the truth as long as we keep both eyes open. And this is the truth. Christianity is a relationship. Salvation is a relationship. We have a God of relation, which means that there is a God and there is us and there is two and there is a relationship. 
You see, if we close one eye and we get into one camp or the other, whether it's like Calvinist or Armenians, or actually, I don't know any Armenians, whether it's Calvinist or anti-Calvinists, it's kind of the same thing. The idea is, if we get into one, we're going to sin on one side or the other. If we go too far one way, we're apt to take credit for that which what only God can do in his providential move. And on the flip side of the coin, if we're not careful, we will abdicate the responsibility that God has given us to obey him. There has to be a relationship. And so the way this kind of manifests sometimes when we don't understand this is um, how, how far can I go and still be a Christian? As a Christian, can I, can, I do, can I see this? Can I drink this? Can I touch this? Can I do this and still be a Christian? And that's a really obnoxious thought. But I get these questions all the time. You know what? Try that with your wife. Excuse me, sweetheart. I was just wondering, like, how far can I go and we still be married? Go ahead and try it. Like Job says, you won't do it twice. <laughs> that is offensive to the relationship. But we want to know, well, how far is my part and how far is God's part? And God has kept it purposely in this gray zone because it's a relationship. And if we knew exactly what I have to be faithful towards, I will boast because I'm a twit. And I'll say, well, everything that I was supposed to do, I did. Well, here's the point. We are sinners saved by grace. And we're more wretched than we're willing to admit. And we're more loved than we ever dreamed, right? That's Keller's statement. It's a great statement. More wretched than we, than we would ever admit. And we're more loved than we ever dreamed. We're in this dynamic, in this relationship. So the practicals of how to do this, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to cry out to God for it and then to do it. You see, we have to be careful. If we lean so much upon grace that we abdicate our respons responsibility, we look like a lukewarm church. So if you're wondering, well, how then do we really do, what do I do with sin? Well, you don't make excuses. Well, how do I not make excuses? Repent. Repent. Well, then and what do I do when, I'm in, you know, when I get the, all of the accolades of man? Well, don't be proud. Well, how do I do that? Humble yourself. How do you do that? You get a right view of yourself and a right view of God. You see, if you will be moved by the pat on the back, then you will also be moved by the criticism. And those are two things that are based in the fear of man, and we have no business responding to them. We are men of God. And if somebody says you're the best thing ever, blow it off, because you're not. And if somebody says, you're the worst thing ever, blow it off, because you're not. You are what God says you are, and that's what you are to be. And so, then what about in the future, and how do I deal with death? Well, you don't quit. Well, how do I not quit? You be faithful. Well, how do I be faithful? All right, well, you know when you're at that point, when you're just, you're pushed right up to the limit, and you're going to quit? Yeah, don't. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty simple. We have been called to be men empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what are we exactly going to do? Because here's the thing. When it's like, I know you guys struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. And maybe you do what I do. I do this. But it is so hard. Like, 
like, I don't know, like somebody skinning us alive. It's so hard not to sin. No, it isn't. But I can't. What are we going to say to God? Well, you know what, God? I know you gave me life, and I know you bathed me in your blood, and I know you led me with your word, and I know you filled me with your Holy Spirit, but that just wasn't enough. That was inadequate to help me resist sin. You just didn't do enough for me. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Do you know why? Because it's ridiculous. We've been saved, we've been washed, we've been filled, we've been given a word, and God says, now just do it, my sons. And we have no ability to say, no, I can't. It's, I'm sorry, God, you're asking too much. You don't know what you're asking, Lord. I mean, we probably wouldn't say that out loud, but are we saying that in our hearts? Our lives are completely and totally given to God. They are too, that's what they're supposed to be. We need to give him all. No excuses, no pride, no quitting. We are to be repentant, we are to be humble, and we are to be faithful. God is not going to say, well done, you arrogant quitter. That's not the verse. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we've been called to be. And it's all for his glory, not our ego. And so I want to do a little experiment here. Without a band and without any female voices, if you'd put up that song up on the screen, I was thinking maybe we would offer God worship. So if you'd stand to your feet, and just a little lesson. I didn't know this until I got the lesson, but you know, in front of a, a screen, I'm sure at some point you've gone, yeah, and you know what this means. This means victory, all right? This means I surrender. This means I want you, and this means all hail. Sometimes in church I see this. I don't know what this means. This means I'm clueless. I don't know what that one is. I don't know what this one is. Or every now and then you'll see this, which I guess is, hey. All right, so don't do that. It's, I want you, I surrender, you're victorious, I praise you. This is called ayad. It's Hebrew for praise, and it means hands up. And so I pray for us as men that may it never be said in our churches that the rocks outsang us, that the chairs outsang us, that the women outsang us. So do we have the words up? I don't know if your words are the same as my words, so I'm going to have to use those words too. Where, where are the words? The words for all hail the power of Jesus' name. We did those. I typed those up. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels fall. You know that one? Do you guys know this song? All hail the power of Jesus' name. I typed it on there. It's on the bottom. It's the last song, unless somebody erased it or got rid of the schedule. Okay, it goes, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. 
bring forth the royal diadem, the crown, and crown him Lord of all, and crown him Lord of all. Here we go. Are you ready? On three. One, two, three. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed, ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Praise you, Lord. God, we want to praise you. We want to thank you that you are better to us than we deserve. Thank you that you have saved us. No excuses. No excuses. God, we confess we have sinned against you and you alone. You have made us men, and we have acted wrongly. Forgive us. We want you to be glorified. And God, we ask that in our most exalted times, in our victories, Lord, that we would recognize that all good things come from you and that they are, all the glory goes to you. No pride on our part. Let us spend our strength, our money, our talents, our treasures upon you and you alone. And God, in our lowest times, let us be humble. For God, you said you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Therefore, we will humble ourselves that you may exalt us at the proper time, casting all of our fears upon you because you care for us and our times are in your hands. And God, we ask that as we know we are facing death, we will die. Let us spend this life not for our glory, but for your kingdom. And God, would you show us who we are to pour into, Lord, that we might pass the baton faithfully to a younger generation, that we would equip them to build on the foundations that you have laid through us, and that we would forget about ourselves. And God, may it never be said that we quit. Never, never, never be said that we quit. But may we be found faithful before you. We ask these things because the power of your Holy Spirit is more than enough. We do not blame you, God. Any failure has been on our part. And now we beg you for your spirit. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.